morning, church. Well, as you can see from the back of your bulletin, I am not Archel Harris. I am Jeff Adair. But um, real quick, I want to tell you this real quick story. Archel couldn't be here today because he's a uh, preaching minister over at Roswell Church of Christ in Kansas City, Kansas. And a member of his congregation passed away, so he had to go minister to them and their family. Um, so if you would join me in prayer real quick before I get started. Father God, uh, you're so awesome. You created the universe, yet you love each one of us individually. Thank you so much, God. God, I'm mindful of life this morning, um, that you give and that you take away. God, I pray that you be with the Roswell congregation. And Lord, I pray that you be with our trail, Harris, as he uh, ministers to them and, and comforts them. God, just be with us today as we uh, go through these, um, these, these days that are coming up. Lord, that we, we pray that you comfort us. And we pray that you're with us in every step that we take. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So, uh, like I said, our show was supposed to be here like uh, Friday at 1.30. I got a phone call asking me to come preach. I'm very humbled by that. Um, I, I, th- I thank you, Clark, for giving me the opportunity. But just so you know, I'm going to ask for grace this morning because I may be looking at my notes a little bit more often than I do. But if you want to follow along with me, uh, I'm going to be in Acts 9. I uh, started this series. I'm going to start today. It's going to, I'm going to call it The Grind. And it's over the life of the Apostle Paul. And so, of course, the best place to start would be the conversion of Saul. But I'll get to why it's called Saul and not Paul here in a minute. So I'm going to be reading uh, Acts 9. So we'll start there in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, before I get any further, I want to tell you about this Saul guy. He seems like a pretty mad and, and, and bad dude. So if you turn back a little bit to Acts 7, towards the end of Acts 7... We learn about the stoning of Stephen, which is a uh, leader of the seven churches. And it says in verse 58, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Same Saul. And in 8.1 it says, And Saul approved of his execution. So Saul is a man who persecutes Christians for believing in Jesus. Bad guy, right? So... After we read of Stephen's death, the church was scattered, except for the apostles, in Jerusalem. And it sounds like the church is on a downward slide. But then as we read on, we get to find another story of God's awesome power, His grace, His mercy, His compassion, and His love. So I'm going to read verses 3 through 9 in Acts 9 again. Now, we, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. You know, we talked about the power of testimony uh, before the school year got started over at the teen class. And, Brother Steve, thank you so much for your uh, words at the Lord's Supper. It's very powerful. Um, and one of the female students said that some uh, testimonies are more exciting than others. And she said, if 
you've gone to church your whole life and your testimony is not too exciting. I had to remind her, and everybody else did too, that going to church your whole life is a testimony in itself to God's faithfulness and yours. But this story of Saul of Tarsus going from persecutor to preacher is pretty exciting. He was humbled before Jesus, blinded and was fasted for three days. This man who had all of this authority had to be helped into the city where he was going to go breathe murderous threats against. And then we read on that um, Jesus appears to a believer named Ananias in Damascus. And he is told to go help this Saul of Tarsus by laying his hands on him so that he can regain his sight. And then Ananias tells Jesus in verse 13 that he has heard of this man Saul and of the things that he's done to the saints. He's like, okay, hold on. We're talking about the same guy here? Because the Saul of Tarsus that I know is a terrible, terrible person. But Jesus says a word that we often forget he tells us to do all the time. Go. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Verse 16 says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Well, that doesn't sound like much fun, does it? Give my life to Christ, come baptized, and then suffer? Isn't this supposed to be the other way around? Supposed to give our life to Christ, be baptized, and then no more suffering? Isn't that how it's supposed to be? That's not how it is. Jesus actually tells us in John 16:33 that I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And in fact, he said that denying ourselves and taking up our own cross is a requirement for it to follow him. It says in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, most often this looks like staying faithful in the daily grind. The regular, usually unglamorous choices of being like Jesus. Seeing as he does. How we treat those who hurt us. Doing our best when no one is watching. Showing mercy and forgiveness to offenders. If we are called to suffer as Jesus did... We should get used to the idea of a little bit of pain. And expectations are half the battle. I'm a kid of the 80s, so knowing is half the battle as well. If we expect to suffer, to have to go through hard things and endure faith to get through them, this will help us have the courage we need to fulfill our calling. But if we expect an easy and carefree life, we might set ourselves up for a disappointment. I'll read you a reference uh, for an article from uh, Pacific Standard Magazine from 2013 I share with the teens. I want to share with you guys. It says, Millennials, those who were born between 1982 and 2002, are labeled as Generation Me because of their self-centeredness and materialism, a characteristic that tends to be the same regardless of race, race, ethnicity, or family social status. The concept of entitlement, the idea that one deserves things without having to work for them, has increased significantly making this generation the most entitled group of people in history. That's from Pacific Standard Magazine. I did not say that, so you know. <laughs> I shared this with the teens a while ago, and we all had a great discussion about it, and we all came up with the thing that just because their generation is labeled that way doesn't mean they have to follow suit. I bet if we're all honest here today that some of us can be tempted by entitlement regardless of our age. I would encourage you, like I did all of them, that being like Jesus will be different than the world. 
You know, our worldview is determined by the truth of the Bible, not the culture around us. We have been given new hearts through Jesus' work on the cross. The new hearts kind of got my brain thinking about an actual heart transplant and everything. So I did some research and found some fascinating stuff I want to share with you guys today. Um, in his book, Primal, A Quest for the Lost Soul of Christianity, Mark Batterson describes a national prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. And the speaker that year was a senator from Tennessee named Bill Frist. Uh, now, prior to being in politics, Frist was and still is a licensed physician. Um, he has performed over 150 heart transplants as a thoracic surgeon. So thoracic is like this area right here. Anything in this area, he's taken care of. Over 150 times. Um, he was talking about the moment when a heart has been grafted into a new body. And all the surgical team can do is wait in anticipation to see if that heart will beat. And at that time, he stopped speaking in medical terms and started speaking in spiritual terms. It was kind of like he was at a loss for words on how to describe the miraculous moment when a heart beats in a new body for the first time. This doctor, who has two degrees in medicine, one from Princeton, one from Harvard, heard they're pretty good schools, has performed over 150 heart transplants. Called it a mystery. Just like Saul of Tarsus, who would later become Paul, was baptized, received the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis, same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave, lives inside the followers of Jesus. It should give us a whole new set of sensory responses, cravings, and habits. Writer Charles Siebert wrote about his experience witnessing a live transplant and meeting a group of heart transplant recipients at a conference in his book called A Man After His Own Heart. He talks about how deeply he was moved by the recipient's profound appreciation of life. They spoke humbly about their second chance at life they've been given, and they acknowledged their responsibility to honor the donor. Many of them spoke of new desires that accompanied their new hearts. Uh, one man is talking, he was in his 40s or 50s and received a new heart from a young man who was in his 20s. And after the guy woke up from his surgery and, and had a couple weeks of, uh, of rehab, he said he started craving Taco Bell for out of nowhere. He never ate it before. But for some reason, he wanted Taco Bell tacos. And then he met the family of that young man who gave his heart to him. And he told them that story, and the family just started to sob because that's what that kid ate all the time was Taco Bell. The man is honoring his donor by eating Taco Bell. What his heart desires. Now, medical research backs this up. That heart transplant recipients receive the cellular memory of the heart that is being replaced. New cravings, new habits, new desires. Siebert called this group the tribe of the transplanted. I want to introduce a, a video I found. This woman, Katie Wolf, was a 28-year-old new mother who received a heart transplant in September of 2014. Um, and talked about how grateful she is. So, I remember going down in the elevator and all of my family being in one elevator. There's probably 15 of us in the elevator and getting to say goodbye to everybody. And you know, I'm going to be great. No worries for me. Just say some prayers, and um, you know, everything's going to be perfect. We're good. And getting to to do that, and then I don't even remember going through the doors. Um, and I remember um, slowly waking up the next morning, and uh, 
you know, having that intubation tube still in and being scared to death of that. That was my worst fear was having the breathing tube in and getting, getting through that and um, starting the recovery process, knowing that I'm alive and my fingers and toes are warm. They hadn't been warm in a while. Um, and being able to breathe. I could lay down and breathe, and that was unbelievable. Um, couldn't automatically feel my heartbeat that I had felt for months and months and months. Uh, that was a good feeling to not feel your heartbeat, which sounds absolutely crazy, but it was a wonderful feeling to not sit there and count your heartbeats and wonder, um, am I going to feel VTAC? You know, have that fear um, and just know that it was excessive. At that moment, you know, several hours later, the surgery was a success. You have a new life. You've been giving a new life by an amazing family and an amazing person who decided that it was important um, to be a donor and to give somebody the gift of life when it's their time um, and it was not needed anymore. And uh, that's probably the biggest struggle through a heart transplant for me was the emotional side of loving this family and this person that I don't know and that I don't know anything about and um, praying for them at the same time that I'm praying for myself and my health um, to, to be given a peace for, for both of us, for both their family and for me and my family, that this all works um, like it should. When you give your heart to Christ, Jesus gives his heart to you. You become a part of the tribe of the transplant. That new heart sets you apart from the world. Gives you a new appreciation of life. New life. You should humbly acknowledge your responsibility to honor the donor. Your heart begins to break for the things that break the heart of God. As we go back to our text... I'm going to start in verse 18. Go back to read Ananias went and did what Jesus told him to do. And Saul's vision was restored. It says in verse 18, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. You know, verse 20 is important there. It says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. A new heart man will make you do some crazy things. It changes things. In verse 22, it says, Saul increased in strength and confounded the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He was strengthened because of his faith and suffering for Jesus and the spreading of the gospel. Now, I've read stories of how shipbuilders back in the day of uh, sailboats, like old school sailboats, how they would go get their masts to hold their sails. So the mast in the old sailboat is the biggest thing up there that's holding the sail. So the biggest piece, they would go to the forest and they would find a tree. That was the way that was, that's going to be the tree. So they would clear out all of the other trees around it and leave it to be 
beaten by the storms and the rain and the wind. They left it there to be exposed to that. So as the tree continued to mature, it would gain strength, the kind of strength that it needs to be able to stand up in a storm out at sea holding a big sail. But that tree would never gain that kind of strength if it was just left among the other trees. I know might have you, some of you would be saying, yes, of course, if I got rid of everybody around me, I'd have to be no problem getting strength. That's, that's not where I'm going with this. It develops strength because of the storms. If we build our lives on the solid rock that is Jesus and his words, then when those storms come, we'll not only survive, but we'll gain strength. Now, as we leave this place today and begin our week, I pray that those who have given their life to Christ, remember that they've been given a new heart, a new life. When storms come, we can endure knowing that God will stay with us and strengthen us after the storm passes, because it will. God's not going to get you to it to not get you through it. Remember to honor the donor of our new heart, our new life in Jesus, even in suffering and pain. This way, people who don't know Jesus will see the awesome power of God in our lives and can't help but wonder, what is that mystery? Well, that mystery is God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit triangulated around my new heart, transformed to help me guide through all of life's ups and downs. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to pray for a drum gets back up here and leads us in worship. Say and pray real quick with me. Father God, thank you so much for giving us the chance at a new heart, at a new life through your son, Jesus. God, we just thank you so much that we want to do everything that we can to honor you this week. Lord, just help us remember to honor the donor, your son, Jesus, to give us, gave us our, gave us our hearts because he wanted us to be with him. Now we pray that you watch over everyone here this week that you comfort them in their storms and let them know that they will pass. God, sometimes pain will make us stronger. God, we hope that we are stronger than you this week and that other people can see how awesome it is to serve you, to serve that kind of God that loves us, created the universe, knows how many hairs we have on our head, and how awesome you are. God, thank you so much. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's a need for prayer or you have an awesome God story, please come forward. There'll be elders up here. Talk to them.